Okay, if you could make your way back in and take a seat, I would appreciate it. Come on in. Thank you. Well, two weeks ago, we began a new series that's entitled Relationships 101. And uh, we're looking specifically at the Ten Commandments, using that as the foundation for dealing with this issue of relationships as a pattern for life. And I told you those at that time, two weeks ago, that the first three commandments deal primarily with our relationship with God. And part of the reason why we're approaching it this way is that I believe that if our relationship with God isn't right, then the truth is none of our other relationships will work very well either. In fact, I would suggest that when you're having problems in your marriage or in the workplace or maybe just inside of yourself, the first place to actually do a checkup is your relationship with God because usually you have let that slip in some way. And so what we're doing is we're looking at these commandments, the Ten Commandments, as a way for us to look at how we're to relate to one another in our families, in our marriages, in the workplace, and in our friendships, all across the gamut of relationships. So today we're going to look at the second commandment. If you want to turn to, uh, what chapter, where is it in the Bible again? Okay, you fail. No, <laughs> Exodus chapter 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5, whichever one you like, okay? Where is it in the Bible again? Exodus chapter 20, not 20, 20, just Exodus 20. Just say 20, just say 20. Oh, thank you for telling me that. <laughs> Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. Exodus 20, verse 4, for the second commandment. It says, do not make for yourselves images of anything in heaven or on earth or in the water under the earth. Do not bow down to any idol or worship it, because I am the Lord your God, and I tolerate no rivals. I just love the way it worded that. I tolerate no rivals. The second commandment speaks primarily to two things that I want us to look at today. It speaks to idolatry and it speaks to worship. So the first thing I want to do is I want us to look at this whole issue of idolatry. What is an idol? And this is my definition. I'm sure some of you can come up with better definitions, but this is my definition and I think it's up on the screen. An idol is anything that takes our focus off God and puts it on something or someone else. When anything captivates our attention or demands our time, our energy, our efforts, our allegiance, our loyalty, it's an idol. It's, it could even be a good thing, but if it's taking your attention away from God and the supremacy of God to value something more than God, it's an idol. So right from the very beginning, I want you to just take a moment and think. Are there things in your life 
that you have at times allowed to become all-encompassing, consuming, that it's captured your attention so that when you lay down at night, you can't get it out of your mind. It's like chewing the mental cud. Are there other things that you have made a priority in your life? It could be something that even is a good thing. But because of it, you have put God on the back burner. Well, I had some things that I didn't have when I was a kid, so I want to make sure my kids have it. So I will skip going to church so that my kids can do what I never got to do. What is the idol in your life? Uh, Some people place their idols in their china closets. Some people, like me growing up, you had things that held preeminence in the house and no one could touch it. It was kept behind glass and wood. It was protected. Some people put their idols on the dash of their car. You know, those little bobbleheads? You know you know what I mean. For some people, that's what it is. Or hanging things of different people like Mary on their dash. Some people actually park their idols in their garage. Some people dock their idols at Silver Lake Marina. Some people put their idols in a safe deposit box or it's in their savings account. Some people sleep next to their idol. And as I've said, it doesn't matter how good it might be, nothing should take the place of God in terms of our worship. Even in this modern era, we're confronted with a level of idolatry. Even idolatry in our own lives, if we're honest. Things that we have at times said, I understand God, but once you add but to God, you're in trouble. Uh, My father-in-law used to say, you can never put two words together, no and God. You can never tell God no to anything, or else you have an idol in your life. Archaeologists tell us that in every single culture throughout history, there have been idols, images of gods and goddesses, much like these that I put up on the screen for you. Some of them are like the golden calf, or in Islam, another idol. But some of them are like Kelly Clarkson, or Kobe Bryant. We idolize people. There is a desire built into every man to turn to something to worship it. And unfortunately, sometimes we turn to people, to objects, or to events to be revered or even worshipped. Just like the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, when they got tired of waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain to bring the word of God, they needed to create an idol, and out popped the golden calf. In Bible times, there are three primary idols, and I don't want to take a lot of time, but I want you to think about it. The three primary idols are Baal, who is the god of sex. There was Mammon, the god of money. And there was Moloch, the god of violence or of anger. Most people don't have metal or wood idols that they're keeping on their desks anymore. But if you go to other countries, you'll see them all over the place. You'll see idols to this God or that God all over the place. And most of them can be boiled down to this, sex, money, or violence. And I would suggest to you that though we might not have idols that we're placing on our desks, we pay big dollars, money, to go to theaters or to rent movies that have sex and violence on it. So to some extent, 
You can't even sell a movie anymore if it doesn't have some of these components in it. Think about growing up, what things were like for you. Is it not true that there are things that are shown on TV that you never would have imagined could have been? I can remember when they edited, they censored Gone with the Wind because he said the word damn. And yet, look what's on TV today. And there's not, not even a rating on it. This is just TV, not even the movies. And yet, it's the latest movie, and we've got to go see it. We've got to pay this money to go see it. So you're using your money, the God of Mammon, to go see sex and violence, Baal and Moloch. Today we have perhaps not metal images, but we have mental images. We don't have images, we have imaginations. In other countries that I have been to, people actually have rooms set up especially for their idols. Well, I think in America, many of us do too. It's called our living room, where we have the idol right in front of us that we watch every single night, that we can't even rest unless we've sat down and watched it, put our time into it. And if anyone were to suggest, what if you were to take a fast and turn it off for a while and actually read God's word? It's like, well, how am I supposed to relax before I can go to sleep? i got to relax. And we're all guilty of it which is why I think this commandment is still very relevant today. We don't worship objects as much as we worship images. Images of success, images of wealth, of status, images of sensuality. It's difficult to raise kids in this culture because of our emphasis on some of these very things that we're trying to tell them are not the values, are not the morals that you want to run after. But the problem is, while we're telling them that, they also see through some of our own hypocrisy to see that we run after some of those things. I was thinking recently about the halftime show for the Super Bowl. I was amazed. I mean, how many of you knew it wasn't going to be good before it ever came on? Okay, now don't raise your hands for this. I can't tell you how many of my friends said, I knew it would be as bad as it was, but I just watched to make sure. Oh, really? And yet, that is presented to young ladies and young guys as the image of what an empowered young lady should do and what they should look like. Is it any wonder that people pay huge dollars, millions of dollars for ads for the Super Bowl, and yet that's what they're picturing? And then we say we don't have idols. It's even harder to do this for our children, when you yourselves run after certain idols, things that you excuse in the name of your own pleasures, your own desires, your own wants. It's interesting to me, and I know this is going to step on toes, but honestly, part of me doesn't care. Because I think we need to think through what we're doing. It's interesting to me that as I've talked to friends, close friends of mine, close, close ministry friends of mine, about President Trump and what's going on, the majority of the conversation has had to do with the things that President Trump has done for us. They use things like the unemployment rate has gone down lower than ever, job creation rates gone up, border protection, immigration, conservative judges play, stock markets doing very well, terrorists seemingly on run. And they talk about it. And I say, okay, all of that's true. Let's say it's true. What do you do with the words that he says that are demeaning? What do you do with the sexual comments he has made. Well, yeah, but you know, you shouldn't judge anybody. 
I'm thinking, I'm not judging him. I'm really not. I'm not even saying I'm for him or against him. I'm merely saying, are you thinking about what you're doing? What you're putting yourself out for? In fact, some of our idolatry has to do with patriotism. Some of our idolatry has to do with our own sense of security. What we value in life more even than God and the values he has given us in his word. Deuteronomy chapter 4, just before chapter 5, which is another rendition of the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15, says this. When the Lord spoke to you from the fire on Mount Sinai, you did not see any form. For your own good, then, make certain that you do not sin by making for yourself an idol in any form at all, whether it be man or woman, animal or bird, reptile or fish. Do not be tempted to worship and serve what you see in the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars. The Lord your God has given those to all other peoples for them to worship. He says, for your own good, don't turn to idols. And yet today, people proudly wear their idols on t-shirts or on their hats. They go to conventions and conferences to be able to celebrate their idols. They, they get their sense of security from the stars and the planets reading their daily horoscopes as if somehow the planets which are created by God are greater than what God has to say about you in your life. Some even, just I was talking to somebody just yesterday, some Christians consult mediums in order to get their future told. Go to palm readers at these local fairs. Well, it's harmless, Pastor. Well, according to God's word, there's nothing harmless about it. It's dangerous, and you open yourselves to idolatry, which can be destructive. God says, for your own good. Why? Why is it for your good? Let me give you just three reasons real quick. Number one, idols will always disappoint you. Jeremiah 10, 14. Those who make idols are disillusioned because the gods they made are false and lifeless. TV ads say things like, where are labels and you'll be whatever you want to be. You'll be popular. Buy our product and you'll be successful. Drink our beer and you'll have relationships with people like you've never had before. Buy our toothpaste and you'll have sex appeal. All of those were just the commercials on TV in the last couple of nights. That's what our world is selling us. And we say there's not idolatry out there. They always promise what they can't deliver. How many of you have ever bought something? Uh, maybe bought something online? How many of you ever bought something online? My wife, she's like the ultimate amazing deal maker. She's just amazing at it. She really is. She's gifted. And I thank God for it. But how many of you bought something online, maybe from Amazon, and when it came, it was nothing like you thought it was going to be? You know, in the picture, it looks so big and bright and shiny, and then you get it, and you think, is this it? I just paid $20 for this? But that's what Jeremiah is telling us about idolatry. It's always going to disappoint you. It's not going to be able to fulfill all the promises you thought it would, that it would make you happy, and you end up disappointed Anytime you put any person or anything in the place of God, it's going to disappoint you. Only God can completely fulfill all that he intends for you and for your life. The second thing is that idols will always dominate you. They'll disappoint you and they will dominate you. 1 Corinthians 12, 2. Before you knew Christ, you were controlled by dead idols 
who always led you astray. It says there are two inevitable effects to going after idols. The first is it will control you. Perhaps the most modern word that we use today for idolatry is the word addiction. Addiction. And you can be addicted to a whole lot more than drugs and alcohol. You know that, right? People are addicted to a whole lot of things, and those things have controlled them so that they say, well, I could give it up at any time. I could quit any time. And inevitably, the counselor says, well, then do it. But they can't because it controls them. It takes over your life, and you end up saying things and doing things you never thought were possible. I talked to somebody just recently who said those kinds of words to me. They said something like, I never thought it would have been possible that I could have done that. But they did. Idolatry controls your life. And the second thing it says is it will lead you astray. You remember the story in the Old Testament of Lot? Lot goes to the city called Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities, and he's there in the gate. He's a part of the leadership of the city. But two angels come. Or was it three? I can't remember. I think it was two at that point. Come, and they greet Lot because they're intending to destroy the cities but to save Lot. They greet Lot. The people of the city come and say, put them out to us. We want to have sexual relations with them. And Lot says to them an interesting thing. He says, I have two virgin daughters. How about I give them to you and you can do anything you want to them but leave these angels alone. There is something twisted that idolatry does in your mind that you would be willing to do something like that. And yet, how many people do I know who have fallen to the trap of idolatry for a major windfall in their finances and done something they knew they never should have done because they had an idolatry issue within their own heart? They say things they never thought they would say. They, they, later on, they say, I cannot believe I ever did that. I can't believe I ever said that. But they did, because something gripped them in that moment that was bigger than even their commitment to God. We have uh, a saying that's in the church that I think is dangerous, honestly. Uh, it goes something like this. Happy wife, happy life. The world says, if mama ain't happy, ain't. Nobody happy. What that's really saying at heart is there's one person in the family who's God. And I don't know one godly mother who would want that said about her. Because it ought not be that you controlled with either the promise of blessing or the punishment that can come if they don't do what you want. But that's how the world does it. It actually begins to control your life and lead you astray. The third thing that happens Idols will deform you. They will disappoint you, they will dominate you, and they will deform you. They will twist you or warp you in some way. Psalm 115.8 says, Those who make idols become like them, and so will those who trust in them. We shape our idols, but in the end, our idols end up shaping us. We become like that which we value, what we worship. One time a rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, What do I need to do to have eternal life. And Jesus said to him, an interesting thing, he says, I want you to sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And the scripture says that young man went away sad. It's interesting that Jesus never said that one other time in all the scripture. Never. Only to that man. Why? Because he knew that man had an idolatry and it was called his money and his possessions. And in order for him to be a true follower of Jesus, that had to be broken. And my question to you today is, what is it that you are holding on to that you know deep in your heart isn't best for you? 
What is it that is so important to you that you're willing to do it even though you know God would not be pleased with it? And a lot of people have hidden things and they think God doesn't see it because God doesn't do anything. No, God's merciful. But it doesn't mean he's blind. And he's certainly not dumb. What is it that you're holding on to? I've had people say to me things like, well, I know that clubbing's not the best thing in the world, but you know, it's where my friends are and I've got to be with my friends. If I'm not with them, I don't have friends. And you're willing to sell your commitment to God down the road for that. Or... I know that cutting these corners while doing my taxes this year probably is not the best. I'm sure God God understands, though, that money's tight and I don't have enough money to give it all to Uncle Sam. I think he's ripping me off anyways. So I'm going to cut some corners. Besides that, I think I deserve that 75-inch smart 4K UHD TV. I work hard. And we're willing to sell out to the idolatry of possessions, of money, of things, and to sell our soul for it. Think about the people that you have heard of in your lifetime who were major Christians in Christendom who have fallen because of sin in their lives, whether financial, sexual, moral issues. And you read about it. I I can remember when the news hit the fan about uh, Jimmy Swaggart. How many of you guys remember that? I I, I can remember I was with George Beach when it hit the fan. And I can remember George, I was driving George Feach to a meeting and he told me, would you pull over? The radio's on. It's telling us what's going on. He has been found out frequenting prostitutes and going to adult bookstores. George says, pull over, and he begins to sob uncontrollably. You look at it and you think, what were you thinking? This is a small world. That's the problem. Idolatry doesn't leave you thinking at all. It leaves you following things that are not God. They take over your life. They will ultimately disappoint you. They will dominate you. And in the end, they will destroy you. And that's why God says, have no idols. No imaginations of your heart that are more important than serving God. What is it that you're holding on to in your life that somehow you have excused even though you know it's not what God would want of you or how God would have you to live? Have you ever thought about how big a $50 bill looks in church compared to how small it seems at the grocery store? That should tell us something about our money and where our heart is. Which is easier for you to do, to buy groceries or to give? I'm reminded of a a family that was driving home from church one Sunday, and the father was laying into the whole church service from beginning to end. They didn't start on time. The sanctuary was too hot. The pastor's sermon was too long. It was too boring. The music was too loud. He didn't like the lights. This isn't a circus. He's going on and on and on. And finally, his seven-year-old son in the backseat said, you know, Dad, I didn't think it was such a bad show for a dollar. What is it that you value in life, that you hold on to? I don't know how many of you guys watched... um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and that whole series with Indiana Jones. But you remember the last one about the search for the Holy Grail? There came a scene in the movie at the very end where they actually have discovered the Grail. But they took it beyond a certain point. There was an earthquake. There's a crevice opens in the floor. And a woman who has been seeking the Grail throughout the whole movie falls into the crevice while holding the Grail. She's reaching for the Grail. She wants the Grail. And they're yelling down to her, take our hand and we can save you and pull you out but she could not take their hand 
because she desperately wanted the grail more than anything else. And she sacrificed her life. And I wonder how often we do the same thing. We sacrifice what God has said, what is best for us because he knows us better than anybody else, in order to run after something that we think is going to make us happy, that's finally going to fulfill us or please us. Idols will distract you, they'll dominate you, they'll disappoint you, and they will ultimately destroy you. God says, for your own good, don't let anything get first place in your life. Not your spouse, not your family, not your job, not your stuff, not your money, nothing should take his place. I said that that verse in uh, Deuteronomy 4 dealt with two things. It dealt with idolatry, but it also dealt with worship. So I want to look very briefly at worship. What is worship? Worship means giving my highest love and devotion. My highest love and devotion. My commitment above all others. And only God deserves that. Not your spouse, not your family, not your career. Unfortunately, many people are like those mentioned in Romans chapter 1 when it says that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and began to worship creation instead of the Creator. Um, in the, one of the churches that I pastored, it was an interesting church. Uh, this was a church where somebody had given them three trailer courts as a tax write-off. He was a multimillionaire. He met one of the deacons on a plane, and he literally said, would your church be interested in getting a donation of three trailer parks? And so they did. But the agreement was that in five years, he would buy them back at a profit. So he could write it off as a gift and then write it off as another business expense. So they did that. They ended up with so much money that many times when I would bring up things that I thought we ought to do, that I felt like God was calling us to do, they would say, we don't need people, we've got money. Um, This same church arranged their services so that the main church service was early in the morning. I can't remember for sure, but I think it was 9 o'clock in the morning was the main church service. 9 o'clock. And then they had Sunday school afterwards. And when I talked to them, I said, why don't we do Sunday school first and then do church? That way we can get the kids here, and then we can get the families to come in for Sunday school and families come to church. And they said, no, we want the main service to be early so that we can get out the door because our kids are all grown. We don't care about those kids. We want to get out the door so we can get on the lake on our boat. I think a whole lot of people, even Christians, are worshiping a lot of other things that are idols, whether it be in creation down at the beach or their own schedule, or whatever they want, millions of people worshiping an idol. In their case, it might be the sun. Why do people do it? I think, number one, it's an attempt to limit God's omnipresence. It's to cause his presence to be limited to a specific place, a specific book. You know, if I can uh, keep God in the Bible and at church, then it means God doesn't know what I do outside. He only knows what I do here. So I limit God. God, my worship of God is very real here. But outside of here, that's the real world. God God doesn't get involved out there. And a lot of people live their lives that way. And they do what they want, figuring God doesn't see. He doesn't know. He doesn't care. I lock him behind church doors or in my Bible. I limit his presence to church services, to the singing that we do. The second reason is it's an attempt to reduce his omnipotence, 
his power and his size. If I can get God in my little idea box, my image of God, then he's less imposing, less threatening, less controlling of my life. Um, Back in Genesis, God says, let us make man in our image. I think we've come to a point where we've begun to make God in our image. Where we say things, and I've heard people say things like, well, my God would never. And everything in me wants to ask, is your God the God of the Bible? Because if it is, he does that exact thing. Or I hear people say things like, well, God understands my need. He knows that I have strong feelings and I can't help myself sometimes. And everything in me wants to say, what God are you serving? The God of your own image? Your imagination? Or the God of the Bible? Because the God of the Bible says we're to do it His way. And that's the only way that we will find fulfilling. People choose to create their own image of God rather than to change themselves. I've had somebody say to me, a pastor, called me one evening. I was, remember, I was standing at the kitchen sink the phone back in the day was hanging on the wall with a cord. Remember those days? I'm at the kitchen sink with this cord phone, and I'm talking to this guy who was a friend. He said, I need to let you know, Chris, that uh, I found my soulmate. I'm divorcing my wife, and I'm marrying her. And I said, brother, that's divorce and adultery. You know better than that. He goes, I think God understands my need. He's the one who created me for the need of a soulmate. This other woman is my soulmate. Now, I'm thankful. I really am. That in the end, he came to his senses and stopped the whole thing. Stayed married to his wife. But there are a lot of people I know that excuse what they do by saying God understands. He knows our weaknesses. I think God does understand. But he also calls us up to something higher. Because his spirit dwells within us. You can't change your image of God to justify your lifestyle. A little girl uh, in Sunday school was drawing and she was drawing something and the teacher says, what are you drawing, honey? And she said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, but honey, no one knows what God looks like. They, she said, they will when I'm done. And I think a lot of adults do that. They make God after their own image. And they say, this is what I think God ought to look like. I think God ought to save me when I need saving, but leave me alone the rest of the time. The third reason why people run after idols is that they want to control God, his almightiness. They want a genie, not a God. Somebody who will grant their wishes in any way that they want. A little boy wanted a bicycle for Christmas, so he went to his mom and said, I'm making up my list and I would like a bike. I don't want anything else, I just want a bike. And his mom said, well, honey, you know, that's a lot of money and we don't have a lot of money. Maybe you should pray and ask Jesus. So the little boy got down on his knees and he prayed and he said, Jesus, I have been a perfect boy all year long, and I think I deserve a bike. Would you please give me a bike? Sat there for a minute and thought, okay, that's not true. So he prayed again. He says, Jesus, I've been a pretty good boy most of the year, and so would you please get me a bike? And he thought about it, and he said, that's not true either. So he prayed again. He says, Jesus, I'd really like to be a good boy, so would you give me a bike? And he thought about it and he thought, that's not true either. So finally he went into the living room where his parents had kept the nativity scene. He took Mary, wrapped her in a coat, and put her under his bed and said, Jesus, if you want your mother back, you better give me a bike. <laughs> but I think we do the same kind of thing. 
We say, Jesus, if you do this, then I will. We try to control, to manipulate God to get what we want. Let me give you just three benefits, and I'll end here. Three benefits for worshiping God and not idols. Number one, it will delight me, which speaks of fulfillment. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I can remember I was back at Elam when I first can remember reading that verse. And I can remember thinking, this is a wonderful promise. God's going to give me everything I've ever wanted. All I want is Jesus not to return before I can get married and have sex. That's what I want. It took me years to understand what that's really saying. Is not God. God's not my genie who pops out and gives me my wishes. God actually puts inside of me those desires that are going to actually be the best for me. That's what he's promising. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of a heart. Romans 10.11 says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. It will delight me. Number two, it will deliver me. It will give me freedom. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. It will make you free. For whom the Son sets free is free indeed. How am I free? I am free because I am no longer, if I am worshiping Jesus, if He's everything, I don't have to worry about what everybody else thinks. I'm not there to please them. I'm there to please Him, first and foremost. I'm not there to please my in-laws or my spouse or my kids. I'm there first and foremost to please God and to obey Him. God's number one in my life, and I'm going to focus on doing what He wants above all. I've watched people over the years say, well, if I only do this for my spouse, that'll make them happy, which will make me happy, and it never really works. I've had folks even say, well, I'm going to quit going to church, and I'm going to go here, I'm going to go do that, because that's what will make my spouse happy. And it doesn't work. You can't make deals. You have to keep God first. The second freedom that it deals with is not only does it make me free from what other people's approval needs, it also makes me free to not worry about my past regrets anymore because I have been cleansed by God. I have been forgiven. But it also gives me power in my present to be able to break patterns in my life, to see change come into my life. And it also makes me free in my future so that I'm not worrying about what's going to happen in the future because I know God has it under control. God has it. I don't have to worry about when I die what's going to happen. We're dealing with my mother-in-law now. She's 96 years old. We don't know how long she has with us. Our job is to love her and care for her until that day. But we know, and she said to us the other night, we were talking together with her, and it was one of the few nights where she actually was able to talk with some clarity. She says, I know this is hard, but it's okay. This is God. And I think as long as you have that kind of confidence in the Lord, you don't have to worry about your past, your present, or your future. You've got it covered. The third thing is, it will develop me, which I think deals with formation. When I put God first in my life, it helps me become the person that God intended me to be. Romans 8, 29 says, For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God has intended that we become more and more like Jesus, that we look like him, that when people look at us, they see his presence in us. The second commandment is, don't make any graven images. Don't have idols in your lives. Because if you do, they will dominate you, they will distract you, and ultimately, they will destroy you. What do you hold as more important than God? And it's, it's fine to sit in your chair right now and say, nothing, nothing, Pastor. 
But if we look at your life, are you being honest? Have you put something else above obedience to Jesus? Have you used your desires to excuse what you're doing, saying God's okay with that? God understands. I'm asking you to ask yourself some hard questions about where your worship is. Would you stand with me? You see, if we don't get this relationship with God right, then ultimately, no other relationship is going to work right for us. It's God first in everything, now and forever. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, more than anything else, our desire is to see how that which you wrote in the old covenant is still so relevant to us in the new covenant because what you wrote reflected your heart for your people. What you knew would make life work best for them and give you the most glory. So Father, I'm asking that you would help us to break the pattern of idolatry that can seep into our lives, sometimes without us even realizing it, until we take a step back and look at it. Until we realize we're doing things and saying things, thinking things that we never would have thought possible. And when we look at it, we realize something else has captivated us, captured our heart, our time, our energy, our efforts, and it has taken over our lives. So Lord, we're asking that you would break the back of that, that you would give us courage to confront these things, and that we would worship you and you alone, that there would be nothing else in our lives that has preeminence over you. And Lord, where we are confronted with it, it's not that you're angry at us. It's not that you're trying to send us to hell. It's that you're trying to break the things in our lives that are actually going to end up destroying us and taking us out of relationship with you. (coughs) Father, we're asking for your grace to be poured in, that we would be honest with ourselves and honest in our families to say, God is number one and always shall be. In everything that we say, in everything that we do. Let your name be glorified. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you. God bless you. Have a good rest of your day.